Hello fellow readers. Today we're bringing you literary journeys through South African cities. Welcome to A Reader's Community. I'm your host, Fasti Karlitz. Before we get to today's episode, I have an exciting announcement to make. We are doing our first ever live event, which is A Reader's Community Book Club. And it will be featuring Joy Watson, who recently published her marvelous novel, The Other Me. I will be there to facilitate the event, but the conversations and the questions will mostly come from you, the readers. I'm so looking forward to an opportunity for this community of readers to connect in real life. If you would like to buy The Other Me before the event, you can find it at the Book Lounge at a 20% discount if you buy as part of a Reader's Community Book Club. This event will take place on the 9th of June at Cape Town office in Ruland Street in Cape Town. Tickets will go on sale next week and I will give more information about those in the next episode. If you want any more info, please email me at readerscommunity at gmail.com. Now, on to today's episode. I spoke to Chadiso Monazane about his book, Junks. This was a standout book for me last year. It felt fresh and contemporary and distinctly urban. The whole book covers only a few hours, and in that time, we accompany a young man and his imaginary friend, Ari, on a journey through Johannesburg, starting in the township where he lives, and via many detours, finally arriving at the ultimate destination, which is the party of the year, called Sexy Honey Super Chubby. The city is at times seedy and dangerous, falling apart around the narrator as his mind loses coherence. The journey through Johannesburg and Junks made me want to think about other books that take us to South African cities and reveal something about those spaces that we're already familiar with. So to that end, I asked Della Guala, writer and reader at large, who happens to hail from the same city that I do, to give us some book recommendations. But before we get to that chat with Della, here's my conversation with Chidiso. Junks is irreverent and depressing and funny and quite unlike anything else I'd read recently. I hope you enjoy it. Let's start with you telling me a little bit about yourself. Okay, uh, my name is Sidi Sumulatsande. I was born March 3rd, 1993, which is on a Wednesday. So that's that's very interesting, right? <laughs> um, so like, I'm 29 now. I'm going to be 30 next year. I started writing when I was like 15 or something, 15, 16. I used to write on my mother's laptop. It was all very bad, really. Like, <laughs> I feel like it's gone better over time. But when I started writing, I thought it was really good. But then now when I look back, it was probably not that great anyway. The reason why I got into writing because I read one of the Twilight books. I think it was the third one, I can't remember. I think it was Eclipse. Then after reading the book, I thought, you know, I can do this too. You know what I mean? Then I was like, okay, let me give it a shot. And I just started trying for <laughs> So we're talking about Junks, which came yes. out towards the sec- in the second half of last year. Yeah. And this is a quick, pacey novel about a young, unnamed narrator who, as I would guess, is in his early 20s. Yes. And we follow him through the course of a single night as he goes from party to party, where the ultimate destination is the party of the year called Sexy Honey Super Chubby. Yes. And throughout his journey, throughout the night, he has his imaginary friend Ari, and we accompany his internal dialogue and stream of consciousness typewriting. So this book, when I read it, it felt so fresh it felt so unlike anything else i'd read it's funny it's irreverent it's very dark and nihilistic a very unusual book i think it's a book that's best 
read in one sitting. Like I read start to finish in one go. It's great. Yeah, so tell me where it comes from, the origin of the story. Okay, so the title, right? At the time, when I started writing this particular book, there's a book that I was reading. The name of the book is Junkie mm -hmm. uh, by William Burroughs. It's about him, I think, kind of when he was young and was kind of struggling with drug addiction. So that was the first sort of seed that made me decide, because at the time I was struggling with like depression and whatnot. And so I, I really liked the name Junkie. I thought the name was great. As an homage to that, I wanted to have like a similar sort of sounding name. I have a friend, his nickname is Junks. I thought that'd be like a good parallel, just to use my friend's name and the guy the book that I was reading that I really, really liked. In addition to this, the guy on the cover is also a really good friend of mine. And then Koke Etso was a friend of mine. A couple of my friends appear in the book. The book was very collaborative, unbeknownst to most of my mm. friends. They are, they are very involved in the creation of this book, even though they, not, they, they may not be aware of that. So yeah, so I started writing when I was like going through like a really, really deep depression. I was really, really drinking a lot. And then I just gotten like rejected by Penguin for like the seventh time or something. And I was like, okay, you know what, this is going to be... Like the last thing I'm going to do, I'm going to do this, man. I'm going to figure this out. And I started writing chunks. And then, yeah, it worked out. So did you submit other manuscripts before that were not like chunks at all? Yeah, probably maybe like five or six different ones. Chunks was like the first one that was like the way that it is. Yeah. I read one of the trailer books. And then I read Stephen King. Then I was like, I'm going to try to do like yeah. the Stephen King thing. And this is something that you see a lot with like a lot of writers, people that I've spoken to. They sort of like start with like sort of like the horror genre. Mm. Then I happen to be one of those losers and then it didn't really work <laughs> then i just sort of left that yeah so but yeah so junks is the first time okay so do you think that i mean this is wild speculation but do you think that junks is the one that worked because it was like it sounds like you got closer and closer to yourself or like to your own experience with with each different manuscript and then junks is the one that was closest to you yeah so like when you start writing you just basically copy other people right? yeah but then the, the more you write the more you sort of find your own style and then, like, over time, you kind of sort of figure out what your thing is and then eventually mm. just sort of, like, build on that. I know also that your first draft of Junks was on a phone that was stolen, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, so, like, the first, they want you to send, like, a couple chapters or something, right? Yeah. So I sent, this, is, this was in, like, 2016. I sent the first three chapters of what would become Junks to Penguin. Then for the first time ever, they were like, oh, can we see the whole match? Because every time I'd send, like, a couple chapters, they'd come to me and say, no, we don't like it. So for the first time ever, they were like, no, can we see the whole thing? And mm. I was like super excited. And this happened like in like February 2017. Something. Yeah, then maybe like a week or so later, I got hijacked. My phone was in my bag. My bag was in my car. They left with my car and my bag and phone and everything. Ah, uh, it's devastating. Ah, but so I lost everything. And also I got shot that day. So it was really, it was just... Holy shit. Yeah, it was, it was a lot. It was a difficult time. I also got shot that day. So I found my car back like... A couple of hours later, you got the car back, but obviously the phone was gone. Wait, so did you get did you get shot in the same incident, or was it a separate incident? No, the same day, the same the same thing. It was a hijacking, so I was getting hijacked. Okay, okay. Yeah. So then I was I was kind of drunk, and then I was sort of like being very belligerent to the guys who hijacked, and this guy shot me. Sure. So there was two of them. Then so the guy shoots me, another guy pulls me out of the car, and they drive off, and I'm like sitting there, and I'm like shit. They shot me in the thigh, right? It was really surreal. So I was wondering, like, yo, what if I can't walk anymore? So the first thing I thought was, like, let me just see if I can walk. It was really painful, so I just sort of, like, collapsed afterwards. So and then some guy came and picked me up. There was a guy who saw everything. He came and picked me up. He took me to the hospital. Yo, what a traumatic event. Yeah, it wasn't for me very much. Hey? Like, for me, it was like, ah, oh, shit. I was with this girl that I was dating. So when they approached us, I was with her in the car. So when they pulled their guns out, I said, can you just let her go? Right? But then she struggled mm. with that for, like, a while. Because after that, she couldn't sleep. Mm. Like, for some reason, it didn't really affect me. Okay, yeah. So then after that, you had to rewrite what you had written out of your head, I guess. 
yeah, like it became a totally different thing. Because I had like a, like a thing I had an idea in my mind. Okay. Then I lost most of my notes. Obviously, I had similar sort of like points I wanted to hit. But then I still had like, as I started redoing it, it became its own thing. So what was the change like? What was it like before and what was it like after? There's a couple of things. Like the, I remember there was supposed to be like a car accident. I wrote like three different endings. Okay. And a couple of things changed. Okay. Let's get into the substance of the book. So one of the things that's immediately very unusual about this book is um, the character of Ari. Yeah. So Ari is the narrator's imaginary friend and he's furry, he has feathered wings, he has black fur, he has a long tail, he has necklaces around his neck. So a very visually strange creature. I think that Ari brings in a lot of like humor and a lot of care and makes it a buddy story almost. Like there's this nice camaraderie between Ari and the narrator. What do you think introducing Ari did for your access to the story and what you were able to do in the writing. Okay, so for me, he was just like a companion. He was just writing about, right? But then, so I remember I went to a dinner. Then I spoke to like this, this journalist, right? And then she said, she made this really weird observation that I didn't really think about. You know, when you like think to yourself and then you argue with yourself. Yeah. Then you like, you reply to your own arguments. So the lady was like, she functions as like a vessel to like bounce off your own arguments mm. against. So it's the guy's thinking to himself, but then also like retorting to his own like views and opinions. By using this sort of vessel that exists as like Ari. So I think he functions in that sense that he feeds the internal monologues mm. that the narrator might have. Then he like helps them progress really by giving them contradictions. Yeah, because so much of the book is what would be an internal monologue becomes an internal dialogue yeah. because it's in conversation like dialogue, with Ari. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, yes, yes, yes. Another thing I found really interesting about Ari, so this links to my next question, which is about um, the depiction of depression in the novel. So the character is... Like, really suffers from depression. Nihilism has seeped all the way through. He's got quite a strong death drive, I suppose. Um, and then he seems not very interested in caring for himself. The business of keeping himself alive, of like sleeping enough and eating enough and not doing too many drugs, the ways that you keep your body alive. Yeah. He's not so good at that. Um, but Ari tries to remind him of that all the time, right? Like he tries to remind him to eat, to not have this drink, to not do this particular drug at this yeah. time. So I kind of thought of it as like a externalization of the drive to life. There's like Tanatos and Ooh. Eros, so it's not just the death drive and Eros, the drive to live. Yeah. And I thought that the character is so alienated from his own drive to live that it becomes this external being that is a companion, but not himself. Oh man, such a great observation. <laughs> oh, that's really, really dope. I never thought about that. It's actually really interesting. So the character has suffered from depression for a long time. And it's kind of a depression without an origin story. Like, I feel like a lot of times in, in fiction, when there's like a mental health struggle depicted, there's always like a, an originary trauma that explains it. Yeah. But not so for this character. This character is kind of puzzled by his depression in the face of what he calls an average life. Yeah. But also sometimes describes it as like a reasonable response to the world that he lives in. Could you reflect a little bit on how depression is treated in the novel? So yeah, the way the story is written, it's written like a very short space of time. So I couldn't really, there, there's certain things that I had to like not, I had to like abandon, mm. I had to abandon certain things. Then there's certain things that I was asked to include, to include by my editor, she asked me to write more about like his family and whatever. So I tried to put stuff about his family in there. Then I tried to sort of like make a connection between like why he may be depressed and like his upbringing, his like family life and sort of that. But even then I still make the point in the book that he's like, I don't really mm. know because I've, I've had a very like normal life. I've been very happy. I don't understand what's the problem. And then to that, then it becomes like a thing of like, maybe this is just a response to the, sort of like a hyper-awareness of like your, your surroundings yeah. and your, your life, basically, and like the state of things. 
you see this a lot, really, especially in like the township. People who are, there's like a hyper-awareness about like this um, environment and like a lack of opportunity mm. and all of these things and how these things become, it just becomes like a well and then it's like a, and just people just get like very, very like stuck into it. Yeah. And the, the way it's treated in the book, I feel like the way the guy in the book is very, very like, he is, he's sort of surrendered to it. He's, he's, he's decided that, that it's over. I'm depressed. Yeah. I don't really care about fixing anything. I'm just going to let this, I'm just going to let this train go anywhere it's going to go. And there was a lady who I spoke to uh, when I went to this dinner. Then she said, she asked me what would I want the takeaway to be from yeah. this book. Then it's such a fatalistic story yeah. that like the takeaway wouldn't be positive because the way depression is treated in the book, you can't really get out of it. It's like the guy, he's just so, he's just given yeah. up. He's just, yeah, he's just surrendered everything to his depression. He has no interest in really fixing anything or changing anything about himself. He's just ready to go. Yeah. Which is not a great way to write a story. <laughs> I mean, I don't think it's not a great way to write a story. Someone else was like, why is he like, like he's, he seems like irredeemable. He just seems like he's just, yeah. then like, you know, like, why would you write a character who's like so irredeemable and he's so just fatalistic. I'm like, hey, bro, it's just what it yeah, is. Yeah, I think that's at least like one of the things that Naren is trying to do is like get to some kind of truth. And that is some kind of truth. Like not all truths are, here is this ultimate meaning that will fix this problem that you're having, you know? Yeah, there's this thing in A Clockwork Orange, right? So the book ends different to the movie. In the book, eventually he like, he sees the error in his ways. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of like, oh, now I want to change, right? So the movie, in Kubrick's movie, Kubrick says he didn't include that in his movie because he felt like it would be uncharacteristic of uh, the, the character in the book. He doesn't see the character in the book being the kind of person who would ultimately be like, nah, I want to change. Yeah, and especially not in the course of three hours, you know? <laughs> like, yeah, also like, yeah, like an like eight-hour book. Yeah. He's not going to just have some great revelation. Like, it's like yeah. yeah, he's just some guy. He's just doing whatever he's doing. Yeah. I also thought the voice has like two elements for me that come through the most like the strongest in in the reading and the one is this like dark nihilism and um like that's linked to his depression obviously but then the other thing is how like irreverent he is and i kind of think that those two things might be tied to each other i think his nihilism translates to moral nihilism as well like he's kind of amoral about stuff like he sort of believes in moral relativism he looks at all these different kinds of behaviors and makes no moral judgment one way or another on others or on himself and the, his internal dialogue is like it's quite transgressive, I thought, and there are like some you know meandering routes that he goes down. That's I don't know. So maybe sometimes I find it a bit uncomfortable because of the content of it. So I think that the nihilism kind of allows the character a lot of freedom in where he goes in his mind and like where you go as a writer in this book. Do you think that that's true? Like, do you also see a relationship between those two things? Hundred percent, yeah. And so Ari is more of like, hey man, whatever yeah. happens, happens. And then the the narrator is more more of Ari's influence on him that makes him become more and more morally ambiguous, morally like uh, right, yeah, very indifferent about it. Okay, so Ari is in some ways like the little devil on his shoulder. Yeah, Ari was supposed to be the sort of like guy who's like, hey man, everything's relative, you know, like hey. Yeah. Goes. You see, I think even at the end, which I was in hospital, and it says, I mean, he's still fine. It's not like it's not like he's dead or anything. He's okay. Yeah. So I read this quote yesterday in an article. I mean, it was an article about Iris Murdoch. The article was written by Isaac Butler, and he was talking about... He, he was a judge on a panel, like he had to read 200 books that came out in 2021. And then what he says about the books that came out in 2021, like the thing that they had in common, he says, the moral and political frameworks of the novels, their ideas of what society is and how people should relate to it, had a uniformity. 
This would probably be true of any 200 novels taken from a single year, but in 2021, what this perspective often looked like was one of certainty, one of providing answers instead of asking questions, one of making sure the reader knew what the author's position was and that that position was correct. So I totally know what he's talking about in terms of books that came out in 2021, but this book is not like that at all. Like, I think that this is what's like part of what makes it feel so, so fresh is that it doesn't espouse any views with certainty, you know, instead it's like these incomplete opinions, meandering um, explorations of ideas, irreverent comments, instead of like a fully thought out moral position. And is that something important to you in writing? Like that kind of lack of certainty, like the open questions rather than giving answers? Yes, it's also very important in like film. One of my favorite movies is Fight Club. It doesn't make any judgments. It doesn't really provide any sort of anything with any uncertainty. I enjoy things that are open to interpretation. I, I don't like something that's yeah. like very straightforward. Again, this is something that I tried to do with the book also at the end. I tried to leave like an open-ending sort of thing where it, does, you don't yeah. really, it doesn't really say how it actually ends. The reader will sort of decide for themselves. There's an article by Nicolas Cage, and they were asking him about one of the characters in one of his movies, right? The movie is, it's Willy's Wonderland. So the character in the movie has like a cup of something and he keeps drinking in the movie. So the, the question that was posed to him was like, what was in the cup? Was it alcohol or was it just water? Yeah. And his response was like, I want you to believe whatever you believe was in the cup is in the cup. Yeah. Whatever, whatever your position is, is the correct position. Yeah. Then that's, that's like a cool thing that I would like to explore more of really in my work. I also, um, I think that there's something accurate about it because we have this very, this very close perspective on his thoughts and all of the different loops and, and routes that they go down. And that is kind of how thought works. You know, we don't have these like yeah. clear conclusions at every moment. So it's kind of maybe even necessary to have some fidelity in the storytelling. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. I wouldn't be comfortable with like presenting anything as if like I'm sort of authority on the thing. I, yeah. I wouldn't be comfortable with doing that, with my writing, with anything else. Yeah. Yeah, and also the content of his rants covers so much ground. Like there's, you know, rants about black consciousness, about which books are prescribed in school. Like these are kind of like political weighty topics. There's rants about movies and books. Yeah, and I enjoyed that. Like I enjoyed the expansiveness of the inside of the narrator's mind. A lot of the reviews I read, like he's described as like well-read, yeah. like knowledgeable. Like, oh, he's yes. very smart, very knowledgeable. They, they, I think that, that speaks to that. They always talk about, they always make reference to the fact that he discusses so many things. Yeah, yeah, he does come across as like a very intelligent person who thinks a lot about various subjects. The one thing that I found that I really enjoyed is, especially in the first half of the book, there's this kind of refrain about like where he just imagines what Jacob Zuma is doing at this time. (laughs) And then it's always something like excessively decadent, like having oysters in a hot tub in Bali or, you know, something like that. That that was like, I just wanted to make something. Because again, this is something that my editor pointed out also, that those stanzas could like, it could function as like the end of like a paragraph. Yes, yeah. Because I don't have any chapters in the book, so it could function as like closing between different thoughts or something like that. But then eventually I stopped wanting to use it. Yeah. I, I dropped it at some point, yeah. So I wanted to ask about the way the city plays out in this book, because um, that's also something that is very characteristic of this book. It's very urban, like urban contemporary. It's um, it's very specific in the way he moves through the city. Like he goes from location to location to location. Like he goes to um, his friend's shacks in the township, and he goes to a friend's apartment in town. He goes to a strip club. He goes to this club. Yeah. yeah another, you yeah. mentioned like the very specific location. Yeah. So you could like draw a map of his movements throughout the night. Yes. And there's also something about the way he moves through the city, which is like confident. And like it's his, 
Do you know what I mean? Like he's um, like even though there's clearly dangers around him, that doesn't occur to him. Can you tell me about the way that you wrote Joburg in this book? Nah, more, more than anything, it was supposed to be an illustration of the environment of like the typical black person. Mm. When the book starts, he's he sees kids playing on the street, and he goes to a job, and, and there's like there's shacks. Then close to the shacks is like a dumping ground. Mm. So it was supposed to be like an indication of the kind of the squalor that is in the townships. Yeah. And then also he speaks a lot about Joburg and how like Joburg is sort of like disintegrating now it's falling apart. And that's sort of like it's supposed to mirror that. The perception that he has of the state of like the country. Yeah. Especially at the time when I was writing this. Another thing that's really compelling about the narrative is like the unraveling of his mind and body over time. So he does many different kinds of drugs in the night. And then with each one like another part of his body <laughs> stops working at least temporarily in some way. <laughs> But then his mind becomes less and less coherent over time. Yeah. Can you talk to me about that? Like about how we see his unraveling, how his unraveling plays out in the book? Yeah, so again, this is something that was like an intentional sort of thing, especially towards the end where he becomes detached from reality. Firstly, I thought that would be like very, very fun to explore. As the story progresses, he, he just, he's spiraling throughout the whole story. So as the story progresses, everything just keeps going to shit. Okay, I wanted to know, are you working on anything at the moment? I just have notes right now. And I have like I have what I believe will be like the first sentence of the, the next book. Amazing. Do you think it's gonna be another like short, sharp? Nah, unlikely no. So it's the thing that I was writing before I was writing John. So I'm gonna just revisit okay. that, just redo that. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm very excited. I think that yours is a very unique voice, and I can't wait to see more. Thank you so much for for being on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. This was so cool. It was so much fun. You can find Junks at the Book Lounge. If you're not in Cape Town, please do support your local independent bookstore. Next, Dela Gwala joined me in person to chat about some books she recommends that take us on journeys through South African cities. Welcome to the podcast, Dela. Are you ready? Am I ready? That's a good question. <laughs> Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Before we get into your recommendations, can you introduce yourself? My name is Della Gwala and I often describe myself as a full-time feminist and an activist writer. I've written for various online platforms, New Frame or Mahala, and I have contributed to three beautiful collections. One is called Feminism Is, the other is called This Is How It Is, and the last one is called Our Ghost Wants People. I am here as a reader, as someone who's loved books my entire life, as someone who once said, Littleton Library is my favorite place in the world. Cute. And we actually we went to school together. I know Littleton Library. Yes, yes, we went to school together. We're both from Centurion, which is always a very weird thing to come across in Cape Town. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't happen a lot. Okay, so today we're talking about the city and African writing. So I thought I'd ask you for some suggestions along that theme. Of course. Um, I have not read Junks, but I read a description of like what happens in the book. And the first story I thought of was a story called Of Pilgrims and Liquor by Kobe Sovili. And this story is in a collection called Our Move Next. And Our Move Next is this really interesting speculative fiction anthology put together by Kelly Eve Guapman, Sarah Summers and Vasti Henny. And it explores what life would look like beyond capitalism. So alternate realities and a lot of the stories in the anthology have this very sort of ancestral spiritual theme where you don't know what's happening in real life and what's happening 
on a spiritual plane or inside a protagonist's head. And with Of Pilgrims and Liquor, that's like a constant thing. You wonder what's happening in reality and what's happening on another plane or is the protagonist's like world and mind unraveling. And all of this is happening in the setting of Johannesburg and sort of in the bars and in the clubs and at a protest and in the beds of his lovers. And he is sort of being chased by an ancestral ghost, his grandfather. And he's trying to run from it through, well, drug usage and sex. And it doesn't quite work out for him. So that's immediately the first story I thought of when I read what Junks was about. Yeah, there's so many touch points there. So other themes that you and I discussed before recording was imaginary friends, because the character in Junks has this imaginary friend. And there's definitely a touch point there with the shifting between sort of surrealism and, and realism and what's on the spiritual plane and what's, what's real. Um, okay, what's your next recommendation? Okay, my next recommendation is Eternal Audience of One by Remy Ngamije. And I I feel like I'm such an evangelist for this book. Like I've mm. always like preached the gospel of this book. Same. <laughs> and I get like very excited and I, I wrote a review about it for New Frame because um, it's like the most excited I'd been about a book in a while just mm. because... I love that central to the narrative is an African moving to another African country or migrating actually to multiple African countries. And the story is mostly set in Vintook. But I loved the part of the story where the protagonist, Seraphin, moves to Cape Town. And I think it was the most accurate for me depiction of moving to Cape Town and being a student in the city and mm. sort of enjoying like, again, the sort of the party, fun, um, sort of like reckless, libido-fueled antics of living here, but then also having to reckon with all of the the class and race issues and with Seraphin, the xenophobia and immigrant issues as well. I feel like it's a book that gets that balance right. Like you really feel or get a sense of Cape Town as a place mm. um, through Seraphin's experiences. And you also get humor, which I love. A very, I guess, like a complex and, and dark, but very fun humor as well. Yeah, it's such a playful book. I'm thinking about the barber in the book. The barber, I can't remember where he's from, but he's also an immigrant like mm. Seraphin in Cape Town. And a lot of that aspect of the narrative is told from his voice. But even in those moments, Remy is having such fun with writing that character and those stories that he relates. What do you think about how Vintuk is represented in the book? As If we're still talking about writing the city, like, do you mm. think that that is also part of that? I think it's got such a memorable opening line in terms of describing Vintuk. I'm not going to get 100% right, but it basically talks about the cold and the mosquitoes. And immediately off the bat discourages anyone to like live in Vintuk and yeah. says that the best way to be in Vintuk is as a tourist. So it's a very like cheeky opening description of a city, but it feels very real. And as a South African, it also feels familiar in the sense that the protagonist or the narrator talks about it's a city that's great if you have money and wealth, but for everybody else, it's a city that's hard. And I think it's also a city that's described as kind of like a, a a small town that only gets the label capital because there was basically nowhere else to call yeah. the capital. So I think 
I've never been to Vintook, but reading the description in the book makes me feel like I get a real sense of the place. Yeah. There were parts of the way he wrote Vintook that made me think of Pretoria as well. It was just because like a lot of experience. Pretoria is a bit like a, a city that doesn't feel like a city, yeah. or at least very many parts of it, because it's so much just, you know, spread out suburbia. Yeah, I think he describes Vintook as a capital village, which is perfect. It's perfect. Mm. It's exactly what it is. I think that is perfect. I'd never thought about it before, but having grown up in Pretoria, it makes no sense that Pretoria is the capital city. It just <laughs> it doesn't. No and every time I tell someone, I recently told someone who is like, who's European and Swiss and has only lived in Cape Town for a short while that Pretoria is the capital. And it's always a surprise. Yeah. Because in certain ways, it just has no business being the capital of totally. anything. I completely get that parallel between Vintuk and Pretoria. Yeah. It makes so much sense. Yeah, the only thing more surprising than Pretoria being the capital is Bloemfontein being a capital as well, I <laughs> guess. <laughs> um, okay, what's the next book? The next book is Zoo City by Lauren Bierkes, which I read quite a while ago. But whenever I think of a novel set in Johannesburg, I immediately think of Zoo City, even though it's sci-fi or dystopian or an alternate reality. I felt like Reading Zoo City was the first time I really got like the feeling of reading about Johannesburg from mm. from any book. Again, and especially with Hillbrow, like it feels very recognizable, even though it's happening in this like alternate universe where I guess if you commit a crime, I think a violent crime, then you are assigned an animal and it like marks you in specific ways. So again, that's like a very sci-fi dystopian vibe but it still feels so recognizable as Johannesburg when you read the book. And I don't know how she did it, but she did it. Yeah, you kind of see yourself, even though, again, it's not supposed to be happening in this world. Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like it's fun to like highlight parts of the city via tropes that are available to us in certain genres, like the sci-fi genre, like the dystopian genre. Mm. I think I like seeing the cities that I know through, through those lenses. I was also thinking about noir as a lens through which to explore a city. So there was that collection last year, Joburg Noir, that was edited by Nick Mklongu. Mm. And I, that, that's another lens that works super well with Joburg, that like sort of Joburg is Gotham City, you know, like the CD <laughs> underbelly. Mm. And I think, I guess it's true for Zoo City as well, because I immediately thought of a scene, spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't read it, where there's like a very gory like murder scene with a, a crocodile. Again, I think it's like a very fantasy version of like a crocodile, a very creepy monstrous version of a crocodile or an alligator. And that's happening in an alternate reality, but still like you feel like you are in the basin of a house in Johannesburg. Mm. There's such a constant feeling of that grittiness, that hustle, that like sort of intense African city that I think Cape Town doesn't will never have yeah. um or that feeling like you can just cross into like multiple universes in one place mm. um i think johannesburg definitely has that like if you turn a corner in a neighborhood it feels like a different space and i think that comes from like a a gigantic big city where you feel like neighborhoods or portals yeah. and I'm not 100% sure sometimes if Cape Town has that sometimes you get that feeling but sometimes I think in Cape Town we get stuck in our own little bubbles yeah 
in Joburg, these different spaces are very much side by side. It's really like one street next to another and they feel like different cities even. But Cape Town, I guess, is more like artificially kept a certain way, especially in, in the city bowl. Yeah. yeah, this is definitely a city of gatekeeping. Yeah. And I guess, obviously, there's been many attempts to gatekeep spaces and neighborhoods in Johannesburg as well. But I think the the gatekeeping of city spaces in Cape Town is particularly ferocious. Mm. And I think the city of Cape Town works really, really hard to keep up appearances in specific ways, especially in the city center, mm. which makes our city center here feel so weird. Yeah. I don't know how else it is just weird, out of place, surprising in, in I guess, the worst and the best ways, which mm. is Cape Town in a nutshell. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. <laughs> That's pretty yeah. much Cape Town. So <laughs> what's your last book? The last recommendation I have is The Woman Next Door by Iwande Amatosho. The novel is set in Cape Town. And it's interesting that whenever I think of novels set in Cape Town, this is one of the first ones that pops into mind, even though it basically most of it happens in like Constantia. So it, it, most of the sort of action and the main conflicts of the plot happen like a across the wall between two neighbors in sort of like the very leafy, wealthy suburb of Constantia. But in the interaction between these like sort of two elderly women, you, I guess, get some sort of picture of like South Africa as a space, you know, all of the, the racial injustice, the apartheid legacies, issues around land restitution, because in the book, two families make claims on the two properties that are related to forced removals. But there's also like a personal dimension of the two characters, you know, going through their own pain and their grief. And one of the characters, I think her family survived the Holocaust. So there's like a another conversation about just like intergenerational traumas that happen. So again, even though this happens between two neighbors of one wall and Constantia, you get quite like a broad sweeping complexity that I think like a very skilled author is obviously able to do. Mm. Yeah, your one day is amazing. I think also that that suburbia is a it, that is an aspect of cities, and I think that it's a suburbia is a weird phenomenon. <laughs> it's a very particular phenomenon, and part, I guess part of it is if you're in a city like which is more densely populated, like obviously you live side by side with other people. Like there's kind of an understanding of that. There's kind of a tolerance, or you expect that people will will be right there next to you and that you share space. And most people live in flat blocks, so it's you know there's a lot of shared utilities involved. But in in suburbs, it's like this illusion <laughs> that you're it's like your land and it's separate from other people and no one else can encroach on your territory kind of thing um but that's not true because you're not like you are still living side by side with other people but somehow in a less like friendly communal way um like in a more more fraught way maybe i i find that so interesting because again it makes me think of where we grew up, Centurion. Yeah. And I think growing up in Centurion and like very burby environment always made me feel like life happens elsewhere. Yeah. And I always think of city as like elsewhere. Like mm. I would never put city and Centurion in the same sentence, even though it is technically part of Pretoria, which is apparently a city. Um, so I find that idea of like how we do separate the suburbs from our like understandings of cities interesting because yeah. they're just they're a mainstay of of cities as well and 
that whole idea of like living on your own little island and not really having to know your neighbor. I think people who live in other urban spaces are always quite scandalized at the idea that you don't know the person living next door to you because mm. it is a strange thing to again share a wall with someone that you don't know at all mm. or someone you have no vested interest in what's going on in their life. It's obviously not a South African city but it's like a thing I loved for the period that I lived in London was that feeling of like I could turn the street corner and bump into someone who's going to change my life but that yeah. idea that you are constantly interacting with people whether you want to or not and that people's lives are just like intertwined just because of the space and the space just puts you in contact with other people and i guess if you live in a building or behind a wall where you don't really have to interact with anyone beyond those walls then you don't you don't get those like surprises that cities bring yeah. and those surprises are obviously both pleasant and very unpleasant <laughs> you know not every sort of character you meet in your neighborhood or in your street or like in the city center is going to be someone that is going to be a fun story it might be a good story <laughs> but yeah I think cities often interactions with people bring you stories thank you Della thank you for those book recommendations those that I haven't read I'm excited to read I'm excited to read too. I'm like, oh my gosh, I I need to do so much reading. Um <laughs> like I think 9-year-old me in the Littleton Library was doing a better job of reading than grown-up me. But... Yeah, I mean high standards though. Yeah. <laughs> Children in libraries, no adult can match up. <laughs> okay, thank you so much for having me on. This was such a fun conversation. Thanks for listening everyone. If you're interested in buying any of the books that Dale and I mentioned, please inquire at the book lounge or at your local independent bookstore. This episode was produced by myself and Andre Bennett. We are members of a podcasting collective called Voice Note, and you can check out our other work at voicenote.co.za. Thanks to Chidiso and Della for making the time to be on this episode, and thanks always to our friends at the Book Lounge for their support. If you like this episode, please rate us and review us because it helps other people find us. This season of a readers community was made possible by a grant from the National Arts Council, which is very much appreciated. Keep an eye out for a bonus episode this week and then please join us for our final episode coming out next week. Until then, keep reading.